In breaking news, a memoir written by the mistress of a famous politician has set tongues wagging as the salacious details of his affair with her become suddenly public. Could this mean the end of his career, which up to now has been exemplary, having served in the military at the highest rank and securing the most important victory of the century? Could this ugly affair spell the end of a glorious life of public service? The nation is divided. This all-too-familiar story could have been broken yesterday, but it wasn't. The year is 1825, and this is the story of the Duke of Wellington, victor of Waterloo, and the vanquisher of Napoleon. The publisher thought he could blackmail Wellington and asked for money to stop the publication, to which the Duke replied famously, Publish and be damned! Blind history, we are going through the, the eras of some of the most interesting um, human historical stories and some of the most in- interesting individuals in human history. It's part of a series that I'm very, very pleased to say has won awards already, and we continue to win these awards. Um, Blind History Season 2, and we're into one of the final episodes here, a guy called Arthur Wellesley, the first Duke of Wellington. Now, he wasn't born the first Duke of Wellington, but he was born to a reasonably well-off aristocratic family in Ireland, of all places. And Anthony Medera is here with me to talk about one of our favorite characters from history. He lived from about 1769 until about 1852, and what a full life. An incredible character. I mean, he really did have a full life. Everybody knows him for war. Waterloo, more specifically, one battle. But if we look at his life, and, and when I've gone through his life, it's incredible. I mean, he was prime minister twice. That's right. A lot of people don't know that. He fought in India. That was his greatest battle was actually in India. He really had a full life, and he, he, he looked like he was going to amount to nothing in the beginning. His mother thought, oh, what am I going to do with this guy? So mm. it was interesting. It was really it was an incredible character. He is most famous, as you say, for war, but the guy actually started off being completely unimpressive. He didn't seem to have very much intellectual rigor. He wasn't a great physical specimen. He didn't necessarily have a fighting spirit of any kind. And for a long time, as you rightly point out, his mother was concerned that he would amount to nothing. Um, Somehow, somewhere in the middle, they were in Belgium, and she went off, uh, she sent him off rather to school. He learned some French. He learned to play the violin. And he came back. As a man, he learned to ride horses right. very well. And yes. He became a fine rider, and he needed to be, because one of the finest generals ever on a horse was Napoleon. Right. So, I mean, Who would ultimately his big... become his big enemy. Correct. Now, I mean, I read an interesting quote that, that comes from him about how I think he did admire Napoleon from a distance. I think they, the two had a kind of grudging respect for each other. But it was interesting that he didn't really enjoy war. Like he was quite emotional about war. And, and there's that famous quote in a dispatch from Waterloo in 1815 where he said, nothing except a battle lost can be half so melancholy as a battle won. Yeah, so he was traumatized. He, he was he absolutely. Apparently after Waterloo, he didn't even want to speak to his men. He was crying after the battle mm. because it was so bloody. And he made sure that King George IV eventually gave everyone a medal. Everyone, from the highest-ranking officer mm. to the lowest. And those Waterloo medals you, you can still find today, but they're quite rare. It was a very close-run battle. Uh, when you're fighting Napoleon, you, you don't get off easily. And also, he lost so many people in his personal 
regiment. Circle, yeah. Circle. And actually, circle. People so close to him. And so many people died that day. Obviously, people would ask, oh, please take us to Waterloo. Give us a tour of the old battleground. What did you do? Why did you choose this place? He refused to do it. And, and, and once he had to do it, the Prince Regent mentioned he had to do it, and he wept. He cried. He couldn't go through with it. Uh, he had had a, a reasonably long career. He was 46 when he stopped after Waterloo. But he'd already been fighting since his early 20s in the army. And as you say, in, in India and in the peninsula and all kinds of places. Exactly. And India was really tough because he was sick a lot of the time. A lot of the Europeans were sick because they would struggle to get used to the, the, the climate and the environment and the food. So his big claim to fame was logistics, organizing, and patience. Now, what's always impressed me about the greats is the speed to battle. So Alexander's speed was phenomenal. Julius Caesar's speed was phenomenal. Napoleon's speed was phenomenal. Wellington wasn't that, but he was so successful. He never lost a battle. And he was very cautious and patient. And that's how he figured out what the other guys were doing. He would always choose a battleground, but make sure he's got logistics to support his troops. Supply lines and defenses. and A big part of that won the war. And he was also very gracious, and he never wanted to snub Whoever he overthrew or won in battles is religion and their beliefs. That's what he learned in India. And the punitive uh, measures they wanted to put against the French after Waterloo, he was very much against that. So it's an interesting thing to read about these people now because obviously the ideas at that time were very different to the ideas we have now. And he'd probably be considered like a very right-wing reactionary by today's standards. But he had some pretty interesting ideas, and even when he became prime minister later on, he emancipated the Catholics, which was very unpopular among some people in England. You know, um, He also was quite open about the ideas around that there should be two strong parties, that one party should not dominate. And he was quite clipped in his speech. Like if he was looking for a solution to a problem, he would use as few words as possible. And I remember there was a story they told of the great exhibition when he was walking through the crystal palace, which was obviously closed in with glass and there were too many birds in there and they were making a noise and they were, you know, roosting in the trees. And the queen Victoria at the time said, you know, Lord Wellesley, how do we deal with this problem? And he said, sparrow hawks, ma'am. <laughs> Two words. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. So he had, he had very uh, powerful abilities to come to the, best possible answer to a very complex question quickly. I suppose that makes for a good general. Yeah, and discipline. Discipline, exactly. You can hear in that term, listen, we're not messing around. And he actually, in the beginning, early years, he thought very little of the British. And I mean, actually, the British didn't have a really good foot army. Yeah. Uh, they were strong with, with Lord Nelson. They were right. very, very strong on the sea. But with a foot soldier, he actually built this team. And he, and he started with line formation. Because Napoleon in the beginning said, who's this idiot? Mm. You know, I mean, I'm not worried about this. But in the end, the line formation took Napoleon out. That was really one of the main things and the great designs of Wellington's army was lineage and line formation. There was a very interesting story about him meeting Nelson. They only met once in the, the lobby of one of the armed forces buildings in London. And they met twice in that meeting. But the first time... Uh, Wellington's opinion of Nelson was not good because Nelson came in and only spoke of himself. You know, he was already a famous 
admiral by then. He'd commanded victories all over the place. He, he was this celebrity for the age. And Wellington wasn't as well known yet at that point. And he said all that Nelson did was talk about himself. But then Nelson went out of the room, asked someone who Wellington was, came back in because suddenly he knew this was a man of gravity. And the two of them had what afterwards both referred to as the most interesting conversation they've ever had in their lives. So it just shows you your first impression isn't always the right one. I'd love to be a fly on the wall Can with you that. imagine? Those the two greatest military men, you know, probably in history, some of the greatest yeah. military men well, in they, history. The two of them in their victories set up the British Empire. They did. It's sad that he had a, a miserable personal life. I mean, he fell in love with this girl called Kitty Packenham, who was the daughter of a, a Viscount, and her brother didn't think that Wellington, at the age that he wanted to marry her, was a good enough match. And she, you know, she was obviously not available to him then, so he was turned down. And he took it very personally. Mm, he broke his violin. He yeah, just, he burnt a whole lot of his stuff. He really had a temper tantrum about it. If only it. he look, could look into the future, he would have kept the violin. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he ended up joining the military as a result of that yeah, because he gave true. up on music and everything else mm. that he cared about. So maybe Kitty's brother did us a favor in the long run. He did eventually get to marry her once he yeah. proved himself to be someone of substance. And it wasn't a happy marriage. No, he, I mean, he was very disappointed when he reconnected with her. He, um, but he still went through with it. I don't, know, I don't know how I'm supposed to look at that. But, but he went through with the marriage. Um, I think he wanted somebody with stature to sit next to him. But she was an introvert. And he loved the limelight. Yeah, um, and, he, and he had many lovers. Correct. And, and he had some children with some of these lovers. I mean, I think it was that bad. No, I mean. but he did say the marriage was unsatisfactory. <laughs> Correct, yes. <laughs> Which is a hell of a way to say <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it didn't work out. Yeah. But they spent a lot of time apart as well. You know, he Correct. was obviously campaigning a lot of the time. Yeah. Probably she, 80% apart. Yeah, and she was at home getting more and more depressed. But they both loved children. He was brilliant with children. And she also loved children. They, the kids used to jump all over him and climb all over him. He, he was away in the Iberian War, his way for five years. So he didn't see his children for five years. They were one, when they, one and two or something. And then when he came back, they were five and seven. Oh, yeah? So that was very interesting. But he, he really loved the children. And then they adopted a whole lot of other children. That was one thing that they had in common. Huh. But that was the only thing they had in common. Well, he was eventually rewarded by the government and made Duke of Wellington, and he had military honors from all over the world. This is probably just post-Waterloo, which was obviously his greatest victory, his most famous victory, mm. certainly. And um, he was buried eventually in St. Paul's Cathedral, great pomp, the last heraldic state funeral in English history. And his name continues to be one of the great military names of Europe. Uh, a million people turned up for that funeral. That's, that's phenomenal. And and he's also regarded as having been a very strange man from a personality point of view. He had two servants who were loyal to him right to the end, a German called Beckerman and his valet, which is a guy called James Kendall. And they served him for 25 years, and they were both by his side when he died. There was a story that he never spoke to his servants. He would just write notes to them. But that, that was actually true for his grandson, not for him. Oh, really? Just never spoke to the servants. Just wrote notes, and they would... They would do what was written in the notes. That's <laughs> <laughs> quite bizarre. And then also during the funeral, um, um, never one to give up an opportunity to be more depressed. Queen Victoria wept. Oh, which, you know, yeah, again, she she liked to be sad. She liked to be sad. <laughs> and you then, still don't like yeah. her. She, <laughs> she enjoyed being sad. But, um, but he he was fundamental in building her empire. Absolutely. And and the guy was also, you know, he he struggled with some health problems, but his biggest 
I think, disappointment in later life was that he'd, he'd stood next to an explosion. He was master of the ordnance for a while, which was like the head of ammunitions or munitions. And a big explosion went off next to him and really deteriorated dramatically the ability for him to hear in one of his ears. And he went for an operation, and in those days they didn't know what they were doing, and the operation left him even deafer. And it really didn't please him to be deaf. So if you spoke to him, you'd have to shout to him from the one side. And also, I mean, it, it, when he was in Parliament, it was very, very difficult because he couldn't hear in Parliament. It became quite a challenge for him in the end. Yeah, he was never quite well afterwards is what they said. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I can imagine it has quite But a he had, challenge. as you mentioned earlier, a vigorous sexual appetite and had amorous liaisons during his marriage, uh, enjoyed the company of intellectual and attractive women for many decades – and especially after the Battle of Waterloo, because obviously these women would gather around and say, mm. Oh, Lord Wellington, tell us about your battles. And then he'd say to them, Well, I'll tell you about the battles a little later. <laughs> but interestingly enough, um, he shared two of Napoleon's ladies. Oh, really? Napoleon and Wellington really enjoyed that part of life. Wow. And Imagine the stories those women could tell. I mean, they should have actually been friends, you know. <laughs> but a point that I found incredible was... Napoleon, he was expelled to Alba, and then he broke free from Alba. It's incredible how the, the army came down to – this was as Wellington's came across from the Iberian War mm-hmm. and basically taking – just before they're taking Paris. As they got to Paris, they installed the Bourbon King again, and th- I think it was Louis Eighteenth. And he ran like a And he and like Napoleon child. came back and they, they, they saw the emperor and they just went to their knees and said, we will back you again. Mm. And that's really where Wellington came because after the Iberian War, he went back to England. Um, he was by then very famous. And he went back to England. But what was he going to do next? They were going to ship him up to Canada. And he said, no, I'm not doing that. Europe's where things are going to happen. And then uh, Napoleon regrouped. This was an incredible sight because they said, okay, there's only one man that can take on Napoleon. The Allied forces declared war on Napoleon or coalition forces. War on Napoleon, not on France. Right. And he was having a ball in Belgium. Then what happened was Napoleon said he knew there was a coalition. So what he's going to do is he's going to hit them while they were still separated. So he was yeah. going to hit the English. And he did that. And he actually won the day before he won a decisive battle while Wellington was at a ball. And he said, God damn, I've been humbugged. Napoleon's humbugged me. <laughs> he left immediately and within six hours or something he was on the battlefields and that the next day was Waterloo. It's an wow. incredible story. Well, apparently when we talk about these women that they that they obviously were both had a voracious appetite for, um, apparently there was a publisher who tried to extort money out of Wellington once because they had the story of this mistress of his Correct. and they were going to publish. And he said, publish and be damned. Correct, he did say that. And, uh, and just... You know, said to them, go for it. Knock yourselves out. Yeah. You can't, you will not extort money out of me. I will not be blackmailed. But he enjoyed gambling and, and, but lots of different bed partners. But he, the one good thing about it was he was discreet. So that, that's what they said. Although everybody knew at least he was discreet. Yeah. I mean, you know, that was the way a lot of men behaved in those days. You're not going to make excuses for them. No, exactly. But he seems to me to have been a really interesting guy and I, I assume also he spoke perfect French, by the way. And, and you know, as, as we said, there was, there was this begrudging respect between him and Napoleon. And when two titans occupy the same period of time, you're bound to have really interesting stories. And did they ever meet? They must have. Well, he saw the emperor 
So he saw Napoleon because what happened was when it, when it was done for Napoleon, Napoleon put his, his best troops together and they formed a square in the middle of the battlefield at Waterloo and Wellington was part of the, the regiment that was coming forward now to attack. And that's when they saw Napoleon. It was the last time he saw Napoleon because then Napoleon managed to get away. And he was away for a month and then they finally caught him and they sent him as far as possible away from Europe. So I think possibly he saw him once. Wow. But incredible on the battlefield and they're both on horses. It's just in today's age, you do not see that. You do not see generals like that. Everything's at a distance. Everything's at a distance. Well, it's on a board. Yeah. Well, the, the Duke of Wellington's house, which is in, in England, um, and was a gift from the Queen, just like Blenheim Palace was a gift from Queen Anne to Marlborough for winning against Louis XIV. Um, that house actually belongs to the Queen, but every year the current Duke of uh, Wellington and, and obviously every Duke before him has to send her a little flag, a little French flag, a tricolour, which marks obviously on the date of the Battle of Waterloo, hmm. the day that their ancestor, the original Duke of Wellington, the guy we're talking about now, defeated Napoleon. And that's his rent for the house for the year. Sure. That little flag. And it hangs up in Windsor Castle and there's a new one every year. And that's an incredible story behind that. And then how many pubs? 90 pubs? <laughs> the Wellington, the yeah. Duke, the, yeah. the Wellington Arms. That's right. It's all named And often. cities all over the world and streets and Correct. high schools and opera houses and all kinds of mm. things that have been named after yeah. So there's an interesting story about the Duke of Wellington. Um, after one of the famous battles, one of the soldiers who'd fought alongside him was invited to have dinner with him that night. And he was boasting to his friends in his tent. And he said, oh, tonight I'm going to go and have dinner with, well uh, with Wellington. The Duke of Wellington was there behind him while he was saying this. And he turned around and he saw him and he said, oh, sorry, my lord and general. And, and he said, no, no, I'd just prefer if you'd show a little bit of respect and call me Mr. <laughs> And he said, Mo, my lord, they don't call Alexander, Alexander, whatever his surname was, or Julius Caesar, whatever his surname was. They just have one name for them. That's the same for you. Use just Wellington. <laughs> Brilliant. Amazing. Phenomenal. Amazing guy. So the Duke of Wellington, Arthur Wellesley. Thanks for listening to the award-winning Blind History, brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters.